Well, there's currently a TV commercial advertising an insurance company uh, using a certain character called Captain Risky. Now, Captain Risky does all sorts of wild and dangerous things, like, like driving his rocket-propelled car off the biggest ski jump you have ever seen in your life, and, and swimming in a hot tub with live electricity precariously hanging off the side of it, and uh, high-diving into an inflatable kiddie splash pool, things like that. Have you seen this commercial? The point of it being, this company won't insure Captain Risky, so you'll pay less. But what is it with all the Captain Risky type people out there that makes them do all the outlandish things they do? Like people that want to climb Mount Everest, for example. Or, or people that want to swim with great white sharks. Or, or the people that want to base jump off tall buildings. I mean, look at that. That is terrifying. What is wrong with these people? I guess they'd probably ask what's wrong with boring old me. <laughs> it's not like I'm totally boring and unadventurous. Uh, in fact, I like to think of myself as a bit of a daredevil. Now, it's true, I've never base jumped off a tall building, uh, but I have been up the top of Sydney Tower. I uh, had, <laughs> had a lovely meal up there. Even got within about six feet of the glass, I did. <laughs> it does seem like we're all different in this area, doesn't it? It's like some of us enjoy uh, crazy thrill-seeking stuff and, and some of us just prefer to keep both of our feet firmly on the ground, nice and safe and comfortable, thank you very much. I don't know, maybe it all comes down to a natural disposition for these things. Maybe it all comes down to our genetic makeup, our DNA, something like that. But it does get me thinking about missionaries. Now, there's a risk-taking bunch of people, if ever I've seen one. I mean, you think about those 18th and 19th century missionaries. Many of them who were left for some far-off country knowing that they would probably never return. No Skype to keep in touch with people back home, not even a telephone. There were tropical diseases to deal with and heat, uh, not to mention the headhunters, and, and yet off they went. These guys are looking just a tad overdressed for the occasion, don't you think? <laughs> and whilst I know that modern-day missionaries don't have it anything like their forebears, if you ask me, they still put themselves in all sorts of unnecessary, uncomfortable and even unnerving circumstances. I mean, think about our own mission partners, whom we've heard about over the last few weeks of Mission Month. The Griffiths in Portugal, uh, Chandra Smith in Ecuador, uh, the Lubbocks in Italy, all bringing the gospel to devoutly Catholic people, which at times has meant opposition and suspicion and even occasional threats. Or uh, the Presbyterian Theological Seminary in India, you know, training Indian nationals to go into staunchly Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim regions to tell people that Jesus is the only way. Or uh, Stuart and Gail Johnson in Dunedin, and Sarah Weber in Geelong, Victoria, both sharing the gospel with largely disinterested, uh, hedonistic university students. Or Dave Bosmer, proclaiming Jesus in the jungle, the jungle that is Chatswood High School and Willoughby Girls High School. 
Kay Chan and Sue Park telling Jewish people here in Sydney about their own Messiah, yet facing rejection and ridicule and, and sometimes even aggression in response. You know, all of our mission partners have left something behind, be it family or career or the comforts of home, to serve Jesus where they are. So what's with these missionaries? You know, are they just a bit like those people that want to climb Mount Everest or swim with the sharks? Are they just cohorts of Captain Risky? You know, do they have some kind of thrill-seeking gene, do you think? Some natural disposition for putting themselves in uncomfortable, unnerving circumstances? Or is there something else behind it all? Well, I think today's passage from Acts chapter 4 will help us better understand the courage of our mission partners. And I think it will also have something to say to each of us here tonight who claim to follow Jesus. So if you don't already have a Bible open at Acts chapter 4, can I encourage you to grab one now? Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. It's page 772 of the small print, 1696 of the large print Bibles, Acts 4. Now we heard the background of this passage in our first Bible reading tonight uh, from Acts chapter 3. Uh, But let me remind you of the historical context. Uh, Jesus has now died on a cross. He's died on a cross and he has risen again. And he's given his followers the command to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now he's back in heaven. Two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, have just healed a crippled man in the name of Jesus at the temple. And they've taken the opportunity to preach to the crowd of onlookers the good news that Jesus can forgive their sins and give them eternal life. But now, some of the religious leaders, they're up in arms. They thought they'd gotten rid of Jesus, but now it seems he's big news again. And so they arrest Peter and John and leave them in jail overnight. But not everyone is opposing this message about Jesus. No. In fact, a large number of people are believing it. And the church is growing exponentially. Read with me from Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So Peter and John preached the gospel, and many people accept it. But others are vehemently opposed, and now the disciples are in serious trouble with the religious establishment. Well, after spending the night in jail, uh, things go from bad to worse for the disciples. Because the next day they're brought before the high priest, Annas, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, along with a number of other religious big shots. Now, you have to realise the seriousness of this situation. These are the very same men who condemned Jesus to death, what was probably just a few weeks earlier. They're the very ones who handed him over to Pilate, demanding his crucifixion. And now, Peter and John 
are on trial before them and, and asked a simple but explosive question. By what power or what name did you heal the crippled man? I mean, think about the situation Peter and John are now in. These religious authorities are powerful men. They essentially hold the disciples' lives in their hands. They weren't afraid to kill Jesus. So what's going to happen? What's, what, what, what's, what, what is there to stop them from killing Peter and John if they now confess that they've been preaching and healing in Jesus' name? Here, read with me from verse 5. Verse 5. The next day the rulers, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Pretty precarious situation to be in, hey? So what are the disciples' options here? Well, I guess they could always water down the truth somewhat. You know, they could simply say that they healed the man in the name of God. And technically that's still true, isn't it? And I'm sure these religious leaders would be happy enough with that. They'd probably shake Peter and John's hands, wish them all the best, and let them go back to their families, back to their regular day jobs as fishermen, back to their comfortable, predictable lives on the North Shore, uh, the North Shore of Lake Galilee, that is. Or, or they could courageously identify themselves with Jesus, their risen Lord. And face the consequences. Those are the options. Not that this is the first time Peter's been in this kind of situation. No, just a few weeks earlier, he was questioned about Jesus uh, just outside uh, the same high priest's home, in fact. Do you remember that? Uh, in fact, I think it's probably worth us uh, having a quick look to see what happened at that time. So just hold your finger there in Acts, but flick back with me to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, uh, so we're going to go back two books in the Bible, back to Luke chapter 22 from verse 54, Luke 22, 54, you got that, it says, then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest, that's Annas, okay, Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. 
So it's not the first time Peter has been in this kind of situation. And that first time, he chose self-preservation over loyalty to Jesus. So the question is, will he do it again here? Now, in Acts chapter 4? Well, no. In fact, the two stories couldn't be more different. Because now we're told that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, that is, inspired by the Holy Spirit, courageously declares that the crippled man was, in fact, healed in the name of none other than Jesus Christ. Peter tells it as it is. He doesn't deny anything. In fact, he goes on, bluntly pointing out that although these religious leaders killed Jesus, God raised him to life again. And the walking, leaping, praising, ex-crippled man is living proof of Jesus' great power. According to Peter, these religious leaders rejected Jesus, but by his resurrection, God has now made him Lord of all. He is the one the Old Testament prophets spoke about, the, the rejected stone or brick that would in the end become the capstone or the keystone. The stone in the middle of the, of the arch that's higher than all the others. The, the, the most important one, the one that holds it all together. In other words, Peter is saying Jesus is the greatest. He is the Lord of all. And not only that, he is the only saviour too. The only one who can bring peace between people and God. Not one saviour among many. But the only name, the only person who can save the people of this world from their sin. Here, read with me. Now, we're back in Acts now. uh, Reading from Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Wow, hey? Wow. What's happened to the Jesus-denying, self-preserving, scaredy-cat Peter from just a few weeks ago? What a dramatic change we see in him. Can you imagine how shocked the high priest and his family are by Peter's courage? See, to them, Peter and John aren't anything special. They haven't graduated with honours from Rabbi Theological College or anything like that. But they have spent three years with Jesus. And now they're ready to die for him. So what to do? 
Well, these religious leaders would love nothing better than to make Peter and John simply disappear. After all, they're a threat to their entire way of life. And certainly they have the power to crush them. But they've got a problem. A problem in the shape of an ex-crippled man whose miraculous healing, they just can't explain away. And not only that, all the people who saw the man healed are now praising God because of it. See, they all know that this is a miracle that only God can do. And so these religious leaders have their hands tied. They know that if they do anything bad to Peter and John, they'll have a riot on their hands. And so the best they can do is command them to keep quiet about Jesus, to say nothing more about him to anyone. Read with me from verse 13. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So with nothing less than the authority of the high priest, Peter and John are commanded to keep quiet about Jesus. But they won't have a bar of it. Because although as good Jewish boys, they revere the high priest, yes, Peter and John also know that ultimately they answer to an even higher authority. God himself. The one who raised Jesus from the dead. And they are convinced that he is the capstone. The Lord of all. And the only one who can save. So so how on earth can they ever keep quiet about him? And so they point blank refuse to obey the religious leaders. Opting instead to obey God. Oh, how it must have made the religious leader's blood boil to be defied like this. They wanted nothing more than to crush Peter and John and put an end to their message. But they just couldn't get away with it. Thanks to the crippled man who after 40 years on his mat was now standing before them and headline news throughout Jerusalem. And so the religious leaders rage and they shake their fists at the disciples But that's all they can do. And in the end, they have to let them go. Read with me these final verses from verse 19. Verse 19. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed 
was over 40 years old. Well, phew. That was a close one for Peter and John, wasn't it? Quite a hairy situation to be in. They came this close to losing their freedom, didn't they? And probably even their lives. You know, talk about uncomfortable, unnerving situations. And so what did the disciples do after they were released? You know, did, did they go home and, and reflect on the dangers and, and then avoid ever speaking about Jesus again? Well, no. In fact, you know, the, the very first thing they did was go and they met up with other believers and together they prayed. Do you know what they prayed for? They prayed for even more courage to keep telling people about Jesus. And you know, that's exactly what Peter and John did for the rest of their lives. Courageously telling people about Jesus, no matter what the cost. And yes, in the end, it cost them a lot. Peter was eventually crucified and John spent his final days exiled on a small island in the Mediterranean. So let me ask, what do you think it was about these two men that made them do what they did? You know, they could so easily have chosen the nice, safe and comfortable option. All they had to do was keep quiet about Jesus. But instead, they considered the risks and they chose to speak anyway. So why? How, how do we explain their courage? You know, is it just part of their DNA, do you think? Maybe part of their gen genetic makeup? Are they just a couple of thrill-seeking daredevils at heart? Is that it? You know, a couple of Captain Riskies? Well, no, that can't be true, can it? I mean, we saw what Peter was like at Jesus' trial, fearfully denying that he even knew the man three times. So it can't be a matter of natural disposition. But if not, then what? Well, I think it's fairly obvious, don't you? Peter and John have now received the Holy Spirit. Like, like all believers... Jesus' Holy Spirit now lives in them and works in them, opening their eyes to see that the risen Jesus really is Lord of all and the only one who can save the people of this world. The Holy Spirit has convinced them of this. And so their courage now comes from knowing that, that Jesus and his message really are worth suffering for. And even dying for. Do you see? And I dare say, as we consider our own mission partners and ask, why on earth do they do what they do? The answer's the same. Because the Holy Spirit, who worked in Peter and John all those centuries ago, is the exact same Holy Spirit who now lives and works in our mission partners today, spurring them on to make the sacrifices that will advance Christ's kingdom and bring him the glory he's due. 
See, that's a huge difference between our mission partners and the thrill-seeking daredevils of our world. Generally speaking, daredevils, well, they do it for their own glory, for their own name's sake. But our mission partners do what they do for the glory of Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. So no, they don't have some special courage gene. They're just everyday Christians, convinced that Jesus really is Lord of all and the only Saviour. And for that we praise God, don't we? And we give thanks as we hear reports of people receiving eternal life as they accept the gospel message from our mission partners. We praise God that it's not all about rejection and aggression, that Christ's kingdom is advancing through their faithful witness, just as it did through Peter and John's. Yes, we praise God for our mission partners. But we can't stop there, can we? Because if we now understand that our mission partners are just ordinary Christians who believe that Jesus is worth it, then surely we've got to ask ourselves whether we do too. Now, first of all, let me say that I see many people in our church who are courageously living for Jesus. You know, that's seen in all sorts of ways as they share the gospel with non-Christian family and friends. It's seen as people, you know, with people inviting their friends to the evangelistic events that we have here at church. We see it with people, you know, giving generously and sacrificially to support mission work, you know, at home and and abroad. The list goes on. I think there are many people in our church living courageously for Jesus. But I think we all have room to grow here, don't we? Because to see the gospel advance into the many, many unreached parts of our world, friends, it's going to take the kind of courage that we see in Peter and John and in our mission partners. Courage to speak of Jesus without shame. Courage to pray boldly for for kingdom growth. Courage to serve in ways that stretch you and make you depend more and more on Christ. Courage to go. Taking the gospel to where it's least known. Friend, let me ask, will you seriously consider going to some less reached part of this world to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people who are there? Yes, I know you can share the gospel with people right here on Sydney's North Shore. And I hope you're doing that. But the statistics would tell us that faithful Christians are needed more, well, they're needed more just about anywhere else than here. Friend, did you know that in our world today, 
there are over 5,000 people groups with very, very few, if any, people who believe in Jesus Christ. Over 5,000 people groups. That's over 2 billion people. Over 2 billion souls with seemingly no chance of ever hearing that Jesus is Lord and Saviour. As somebody once said, if ten men are carrying a log, nine of them on the little end and one on the heavy end, and you want to help, which end will you lift on? So why haven't we gone? Let me be blunt. I think it's often because we value our security and our safety and our comforts more than we value Jesus Christ. We want to live with both feet firmly on the ground, nice and safe and comfortable. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, a dying world goes without hearing that Jesus died to save them and that he is now Lord of all. But he is, isn't he? We believe that, don't we? Then surely he's worthy of so much more. You know, we're so quick to say, mission, oh, mission's just not for me. I just don't have what it takes Friend, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got what it takes. Or should I say whom it takes? Now, for some of us, sure, there might be good reasons to stay. But I dare say for many of us, there are even better reasons to go. Not just the fact that it would solve all our space issues here at Chatswood Presbyterian Church. <laughs> you know, Beth came to me the other day with a list. My wife loves her lists, but she was particularly excited about this list. In fact, she was bouncing off the walls. Um, it was a, a list with the types of skills mission agencies are looking for at the moment. On her list were doctors, IT people, teachers, physios, secretaries, dentists, lawyers, surgeons, accountants, pharmacists, finance people, musicians, chefs, carpenters, librarians, nurses, business people, engineers, psychologists and Bible teachers. And when I asked her why it was that she was so excited, she said, well, I've just gone through the church directory and all these people are in our church. It's the sort of thing my wife does in her spare time. <laughs> See, she's already worked out where you're all going. <laughs> uh, the point is, there's a way God can use your skills in mission. So, friend, please, if God is touching your heart tonight, please come and talk to us. Talk to somebody on the ministry team. 
to find out how he might be able to use you in mission. And we can pray with you about any of the concerns that you might have and maybe we can help, out, help you, you know, work out what the next steps might be. But I thought I'd finish tonight with a quote, um, a quote that comes from the 19th century missionary C.T. Studd, who left behind uh, a privileged life and a very, very successful cricketing career, uh, playing for England. Uh, he left it all to take the gospel, first to China, and then to India, and then to Africa. And you know, before he left, many, many people criticised him, uh, saying that he, he was wasting his life. This is how he replied. He said, how can I spend the best years of my life living for the honours of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Friends, let's hear God's call to courage today. And let's answer the call for the glory of our Lord and Saviour. Let's pray. My Father, we are struck by the sheer numbers of people in our world uh, who seemingly have no chance of ever hearing about Jesus. With so few Christians there to share with them the gospel of salvation. Father, we praise you uh, that you have saved us. Yet, Lord, we know that Jesus sacrificially died for us, that we might now sacrificially live for him. So, Father, through your Holy Spirit, make us a people of courage, a people so totally convinced that Jesus really is Lord of all and the only Saviour, that we'd consider it a privilege to lay down our lives for him. Father, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Father, send out the labourers from among us, that Jesus might receive the harvest of praise and worship and glory that he so richly deserves. Amen.